Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. So this is from Matthew 5, 21 to 30. Anger. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hands you over to the judge, then the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Lust. You have heard before it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. There's a, uh, a letter in the early church from uh, what we think is one of John's early disciples to a man named Dionysius, where he uh, simply just says uh, that Christians shared their table with all, but not their bed with all. And what he was commenting on is one of the unique testimonies uh, that Christians had was the, the unique way that they cared for people, that their definition and practice of love was uh, utterly cu- culturally um, against the grain of the way everyone else did it around them. And we're, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, th- this amazing teaching that Jesus gives about what it means to be His disciple, what it looks like to follow Him. And in this next section, uh, that it's extends beyond just this morning, what He's going to continually talk to us about is what it actually looks like to love somebody. What is a Christian view of love towards people? What does it look like to practice love? It's against the grain. It's salt and light. And so, the idea of loving people uniquely from a Christian perspective uh, on these topics that Jesus is teaching on, let's notice four four things this morning. Let's notice the scope of this teaching Secondly, the warning in the teaching. Thirdly, the solution for the teaching. And fourth, the power to handle this teaching. So first, let's notice the scope of this teaching. I mean, Jesus gives an amazing scope on these two uh, topics of of anger and lust. But notice what He says at the very beginning and how He's going to go into this. In verses 21 and 27, He begins both of them by saying, You have heard that it was said. Now I say to you, Now, um, people wonder right from the beginning, is is Jesus here coming to contradict the Old Testament? Is He here to undo what we've read uh, from Israel in in that practice? And the answer is no, Uh, because what Jesus says here is not what He says elsewhere 
which is commonly, uh, you have heard it written, or it is written. He's not contradicting anything that is written, anything that was prior given to Israel before. What he's contradicting was a social practice and interpretation and understanding of these commands. So what he was doing was going into Israel's understanding of what it looked like to believe these things and practice them and then hold fences around them and and convince people about this is what it means to love somebody. Um, For years, you know, physicists thought uh, the atom was like the smallest particle in the world. And then Ernest Rutherford came along and did some experiments and just split that wide open and and all of these other particles kind of came out till we realized these are actually the most defining smallest particles in the world. And what, what Jesus is doing when he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, what he's going to do is he's going to come along the social, cultural understanding of anger and lust, and he's just going to split these commands wide open and widen the scope of what this means for anger and for lust. I mean, for anger, when he says this in verse 22, he says, you have heard that it was said, uh, do not murder, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now, when he says anger, he says, you have heard that it was said, do not murder, but I say, do not be angry. There's two Greek words for anger. One of them is the Greek word thumos, where we get the word thermometer from. It's like a boiling, overflowed anger. It's an explosive anger. But the other word for anger is the Greek word orge which is a a slow, simmering bitterness, something that's not externally visible, that's easily masked with your personality or your, your, your courteous social interaction, but deep within is always simmering. That's what Jesus is using here, and that's what He's talking about. It's a, it's a silent, determined bitterness where we are, are drawn to fantasize about something that could happen to somebody hoping for the worst for them, hoping they're for their own demise. He, he gives two examples of what this can look like. He says, uh, insulting your brother. This is the Greek word raka. It just, it literally says, uh, to mean somebody becomes nothing. Uh, it's to attack somebody intellectually. Um, when he, and then he says, uh, or, or you call somebody a fool. It is you attack their character or their reputation. So anytime that we, we look at somebody, we don't want their life to go well, or we think they're such a, a, a fool for thinking that, or they're so unbelievably impossible to be in a relationship with because how could they ever live life that way or write that? Jesus says, what we're essentially saying to them is, I want them to go away. And it's essentially the same thing as murder. But then he goes after lust. Now, you have to know that no culture has ever accepted adultery. Across religious cultural bounds, there's never been a, a, a culture that just practiced adultery and thought this was an acceptable thing to live in. But Jesus What he goes after is he says in verse 28, but I say to you, anybody who looks with lustful intent is committing adultery. Now, the word lustful intent 
is the Greek word epithumase, which um, we'll, we'll come back to this later, but is, is commonly the word uh, that is used for idolatry in the New Testament. But what the word is, is getting after is it's getting after the idea of going to something for more than it's meant to give you. That is going to something to get out, something else out of it. And what he's doing with this word is he is going after the idea of us separating a committed, intimate relationship with an experience. See, what we have the tendency to do is to go after somebody for something rather than the person. See, the, the Bible's view of, t- of sexuality is that you and I are made body and soul. That the two things are not two parts to one another, it is the makeup of a human being. So that when you participate in sexuality, what it's meant to be is a physical exhibit of an internal realistic soul connection but from two people who are united by their soul in the practice of a marriage. And what's so broken is when we want to separate those things. We want to go after somebody to just have the experience and not have any of the connection whatsoever. And Jesus says, whenever we try to separate body and soul, just for the sake of an experience, he says, it's the same thing as adultery. Now, with both of these together, what is Jesus doing? What, what is he teaching us? What's he going after? Look, in both of these cases, what's behind all of this is our tendency to live for our insisted rights. Look, think about this. Why are we so drawn to anger and bitterness towards people, or, or, or to lust. Why are these things so easy for us? It works this way. Look, everybody you're in a relationship with, especially a loving relationship, you have one of two options. You can either approach them like you exist for me, or you can approach them, I exist for you. And if you approach them that they exist for you, then what will always happen is that you will always look at them as if they are a person who exists to serve your rights. And what happens when they do not serve your rights? Things like uh, anger and bitterness and lust not just happen, they become justified. Because you can say all sorts of things to yourself like, he never listens. She's never there for me. The kids are always more important than me. And when you begin to say those things, here's what's dangerous and what Jesus is going after. You can still say, but I've never killed anybody. Or I've never cheated. And you can live with that kind of heart and think you're in perfect fellowship with God and call yourself a loving person and that's what Jesus is going after and trying to split wide open. That's the scope of his teaching. But secondly, he gives a warning with this teaching. Now here's what's fascinating about Jesus' warning. It is not a warning 
that typically uh, comes in the same tone of most warnings we get. Most warnings we get are about what will happen to us eventually if we do not stop practicing something. But Jesus here is actually telling us what's happening to us presently as we refuse to practice something. He's saying, if you do not begin to widen the scope of your love, you're going to continue to live an enslaved life and a disintegrating life. He says this in verse 26. If we don't deal with our anger, he says, uh, excuse me, verse 25. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to him with court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Now, he's speaking metaphorically here, but his picture is brilliant with anger because what Jesus is saying is, unless you deal with your anger, unless you widen your understanding of what it means to love somebody, he says, you're going to be put in a prison. You're going to be put in an emotional prison. That is, this anger that you have in this relationship is a force that is so powerful, it's going to be projected onto every single person you come in contact with. And there's a great irony to it. The irony is this, is that when you are angry at somebody, what's happening is that you are convinced there's an injustice. You're convinced that somebody has done something wrong to you, somebody's withheld something from you that you, you're, you deserve, and to punish them, what you're doing is you're going to put them in jail. You're, you're going to be passive-aggressive with them, or you're going to wish for the worst for them, and you'll convince yourself that you're putting them in prison, but Jesus says, oh, no, 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 it's the exact opposite, that when you wish this on somebody… When you treat them that way, you're not putting them in prison. You're putting yourself in prison. Anne Lamott, uh, the great author, she said once, she said, hate and revenge is like drinking a poison and hoping it kills the other person. And what, what Jesus is saying is, unless you begin to widen your view of love and understand what it means to love, you're gonna, you have the, the potential to spend most of your life in an emotional prison. But he also warns us that if, if you don't begin to change this, you, you won't just be enslaved, you'll begin to disintegrate. In the next section, when he's talking about lust, he says this. He says in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, this word hell is the Greek word Gehenna. It was a trash heap outside of Jerusalem. So what Jesus is doing, he's speaking metaphorically. And, and the metaphor is this. He's not saying if you struggle sexually, you'll become trash. Or you deserve to be treated like trash. Or you are trash. What he's doing is he's saying lust is a myth. See, when we are tempted into lust, what we tell ourselves is that if I engage in this, 
I'll become something better. Or I'll get something richer. Or I'll, I'll finally feel affirmed and loved in this moment. That's what we tell ourselves. But Jesus says it actually has the opposite effect on us. Is that when we engage in this, and when we pursue it, we're not finding a treasure. It's actually turning us into something that we never wanted, which is like trash. Because lust, it has this drug-like addiction to it. And this word epithumase, that he uses for lustful intent, suggests this addictive-like behavior. You know how drugs work. You go to the drug to get a hit because the hit will give you something that you desperately need in life. But nobody ever goes to that one time hoping and thinking it will turn them into somebody years later whose life is a disaster. But each time you go, the next time you go, you have to have more of it. You have to have a deeper hit of it. And it never gives you actually what you want. It turns you into something you never wanted to get out of it. And Jesus says that's how lust works. I'll give you an amazing example of this. Um, this is like 20 years ago. Uh, in Vogue magazine, a woman named Naomi Wolf wrote an article called The Porn Myth. And what she said was uh, when, when the Internet came out in the late 90s, the most popular thing right away was the accessibility of pornography. You used to be able to have to go into a store, uh, work up enough courage to do something like that, but now you could just get it online. And she said one of the social fears that people had was if, if we were having this explosion of porn, we're just going to become over-the-top sexual in this culture. Like everybody's going to be having sex in out-of-control ways. Like they, they were literally worried it was going to start happening uh, all over their workplace, public, things like that. But she says, she says, you know what? It's actually having the opposite effect. Here's what she said. She said, the effect of pornography is not making men into raving beasts. On the contrary, the onslaught of porn is responsible for deadening male libido in relation to real woman, and leading men to see fewer and fewer women as porn-worthy. This is really intense language. I apologize for not warning you on this, but just follow me on the idea. All this sexual imagery in the air, all this sexual imagery in the air, meaning that sex has been liberated, or is it in the case of the sexual relationship between the multi-billion dollar porn industry, compulsiveness and sexual appetite has become like the relationship between agricultural business, processed food, supersized portions, and obesity. Your appetite is stimulated and fed by poor quality material. It takes more junk to fill you up. People are not closer because of porn, but further apart. People are not more turned on in their daily lives, but less so. Now, here's what she's saying. 
that's right in the parenthetical comment of Jesus. Either you deal with anger and lust, or it deals with you and takes over your life and turns you into something you never, ever desired to be when you went after it. And that's his warning and why he wants us to grasp the scope of his teaching. So what can we do with this? How can we face this? Well, thirdly, let's notice the, the, uh, the solution for the teaching. And there's really two things here, and we don't have time to do them both, but there's one internal and one external. The internal one is this. In verse 29 and 30, when Jesus is talking about lust, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, Origen, the early church, thought Jesus meant literally do this, and so he did it. And then he wrote, it did not in any way solve my problem with lust. Because Jesus is speaking metaphorical. And, and the quick principle is just this. When Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, he doesn't say, let somebody else cut it off. Or let the priest cut it off. He says, you cut it off. And what he means is that you are the patient and you are the surgeon. And if you want to deepen your view of love, you have to stop blaming your struggle with anger and lust on other people and on your circumstances. I've showed you this before, but I had a professor in class one time who uh, walked up to the front of our class with a cup of coffee and he started shaking it at the front row. And everybody on the front row was like, whoa, what are you doing? And he said, okay, why did coffee come out? And everybody goes, because there was coffee in there and you shook it. He said, no, it's not because I, sh I shook the mug. He said, coffee came in because, co coffee came out because coffee was inside of that. If there was nothing inside of that, nothing would have come out. What Jesus is saying is that if there is in all of us an acorn of hate and lust, you have the power to fertilize that and you have the power to heal that and to do something about that. And the more you blame your circumstances about what's going on around you, the more that acorn will grow. That's what we can do internally, but externally, he gives us something great as well. Um, in verse 23 and 24, when Jesus is talking about anger, he's, he redefines anger for us, and then he says, now listen, if you're on the way to the temple and your brother has something against you, you need to stop and go be reconciled. Now, this is sort of strange teaching uh, because Jesus is talking about this command and all of a sudden talks about, um, hey, don't go to worship this way. Now, why is he doing this? He's doing this because you and I have the tendency to be able to live life and completely separate what's happening vertically with us with God and socially with our neighbor and think, the implications of this have nothing to do with this. 
Look, in Genesis 3, if you go back to the meaning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve fall into sin and brokenness enters the world, something fascinating happens. It says they were naked and not ashamed, but then immediately they had to put on foreskins and hide both from God and from each other. And what we're being told there is that what sin does is it simultaneously breaks our relationship with God and our relationship with our neighbor to the point you cannot separate them. So that there's there's no such thing as you being out of accord with other people and being in perfect fellowship with God. Jesus is saying if you want to have a reconciled relationship with God, you must have a reconciliation with your brother. And what's fascinating about his teaching here is he's saying the way to deal with anger before God is to deal with it with your neighbor. And, And you know what his solution is for this? His solution is proximity. See, one of the ways that lust and anger so grow is in distance from people. There was a study a couple years ago uh, from Queensland University in Australia that took different races of people and put them together for a couple days. And it showed the more time that they were just together, the more empathy grew in their brain to be able to engage and understand and love somebody. Emmanuel Ako said uh, a couple years ago, proximity breeds care, but distance breeds fear. And there is no culture in the history of the world that has ever been tempted with distance the way you and I are. Because what the internet does is it convinces you that you are connected to people who you have no idea who they are and that you are engaging in, quote, conversations and doing it in community when actually each time you do it, it's not growing you closer to people. It's actually moving you further and further and further apart. Is it any shock to anybody that the unity in our, 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 just our culture has grown further and further and further the more social media opportunities we have? Is it any shock that there's like a one-to-one connection between how divided the church is and how much we participated online in political and social conversations all the way through 2020 and 2021? If you don't connect that, you're socially blind. Because one of the reasons we can't stand one another is because we talk at one another and not to one another. And what Jesus is pleading with us to do is if you want to remove the simmering bitterness out of your heart towards people who think this way and not that way, you have got to drop everything and go talk to them. Sit down with them. Look them in the eye. Understand their story. 
hear their voice and not read their words on a screen. There was a story last month about a man named uh, Trino Jimenez. His brother had been murdered 29 years earlier violently by a man named Melvin Carroll. Melvin was sentenced to prison. Uh, life with a possibility of parole, though. And what Jimenez said is he said, I had many struggles in my heart. He said, I was filled with anger. And not anger just towards Melvin, but anger towards all of black people. He said, I struggled with the entire race. And I was consumed with an event that could not be undone. But then Jimenez became a Christian. And it said, I began to feel that God called me to forgiveness. And with my, he said, in my struggles with my anger, God began to eventually carve out the anger from within me. And here's how he did it. Jimenez began to write Melvin letters in prison. He never backed away from the pain. He never minimized the hurt that he experienced, and his family still on went without the, without the presence of their brother. But he went, and he finally visited Melvin, and they began to have face-to-face meetings in the prison and to talk. Jimenez began to bring pictures of his children to share his story, to show things in him. And he said the more he began to visit him, the more God carved out the anger from within his own heart. Not ever forgetting what had happened to his brother, but but moving to the point that it was possible to forgive him. The article said this, their story challenges the notion that even the most egregious cases in victims and those who have caused harm should be kept apart. And eventually, Carol came up for parole. And as he came, Jimenez testified for him that he should be set free. And when asked about it, Carol said this. He said, being forgiven for the hurt that you caused a family that took so much weight off my shoulders, like I was soaring on my way back. People asked him, so you, you got found suitable? He said, hey, I found something even better than that. Somebody that you can't stand. You ought to think about not taking communion again until you go talk to them and work that out and be amazed what God will do in your heart. He gives us an incredible scope of this teaching, a warning in it. Thirdly, he gives a really powerful solution. So fourthly, how in the world do you do this? How in the world do we do this? Look, in verse 23 and 24, when Jesus gives this picture of anger, he says, you'll be thrown into a prison unless you deal with it, and you will stay there until the last penny is paid. Now, what does he mean? Look, when we're in prison, it's a justice issue. And the only way you get out is when the debt is fully paid. And and 
we understand this intuitively. That if somebody hurts us, we think, you ought to pay for this to the degree that my hurt is medicated and healed for me. But Jesus says the the problem of anger is way more profound than that. Because it's not just hurting them or that person, it's also wounding you. And he says, you will stay in that until the last penny is paid. So here's the question, who pays, that, who pays that debt? And you know who pays it? You do. Because forgiveness works this way. If you wound me, I, I mean, there's two options. I can make you pay for it, which Jesus has actually just puts me in jail. Or I can get out of it because I hold the keys because they're locked from the inside and I can pay that debt and release you off of that. And that's how anger begins to go from a a boiling bubble to a dead water. But you know what? You can't pay for that unless somebody first pays for that for you. Because the justice will never make sense to you. But here's the gospel. The gospel is this. Look, anger and lust are prisons. They are self-made prisons that we have locked ourselves in. And God looked at our pain and didn't just judge us with this. He went after it and went in our prisons to set us free. And until you begin to see that Jesus goes in your prison for you, to take your place, to undergo all of that enslaving, disintegrating wrath of God, until you begin to see that, it's almost impossible to get out of your own little prison. Because at best what you'll do is make other people try to pay for the prisons that you have put your own self in. But Jesus is is saying, I am the way out. I am the way out by going in for you." you. Do you remember growing up reading The Tale of Two Cities? with Charles Dickens and the story of Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton. I mean, they're sort of enemies. They're both in love with the same woman. Sidney puts his heart on the line. The woman rejects him. And Charles is in prison, sentenced to death. What Sidney does is because they sort of look alike, he breaks in, almost drugs him, takes off his clothes, changes his clothes, and decides because the love of his life loves Charles and not him, he's going to die for Charles. And he's going he's to undergo the execution, going into the prison to set him free. And as he is up for execution, no one knows what's going on, but a little girl notices because she's going to be killed too. And she looks at Sidney and she says, I know what you're doing. I know you're giving your life for this man. And that's enough power for me to undergo this death myself. Look, when you face anger and lust and you take it head on, it will feel like facing a death. Something alive in you will will say, stop, don't but it's the thing that's killing you. But if you look at Jesus, if you look at him going into the prison for you, 
He did this for you. It's enough power to undergo those deaths that you can be set free. Do you remember that great hymn? He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, that eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Look, to the degree that you can see Jesus going in for you, you can get out and become a loving person and become a community that will completely change the way our culture looks at these two things. Let's pray. Our Father, this is uh, incredible teaching. It's hard to take. It's hard to face. It's hard to go forward with. But you, Lord, went for us, went on our behalf, went in to the gates of wrath that we could land in the arms of love. Lord, help anybody struggling with with deep-seated anger, with deep imprisoned lust. Lord, taste the face of grace. Lord, meet us now in Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.